Before we begin this podcast episode, we would like to remind friends that all are invited to participate in Ohio Yearly Meetings online programs, including worship, discussions, and studies such as this one. Go to our website, ohioyearlymeeting.org, and select the OIM online choice from our menu for Zoom link and other information. The way, like the cross, is spiritual. It is an inward submission of the soul to the will of God, as it is manifested by the light of Christ in the consciences of men. William Penn, from his book, No Cross, No Crown. This is the Greek Bible Study, session 26. We are reading the Gospel according to Mark. The 14th chapter. 22. I know we had a long discussion last week regarding two words, the word Lord in English and the word servant. Just to recap that, the word Lord goes back to a Greek word, kurios, which has two meanings. One meaning is owner or master, like an owner of a house or an owner of a slave, a master of a slave. In the Old Testament, one of the words for God, Adonai, means my master. The other word we talked about last time was the word doulos, which is the Greek word for slave. There is another word, actually a couple of words, but one of them is diakonos, which is the word for servant or someone who ministers to someone else. The word doulos and diakonos were both translated in earlier English 300, 400 years ago by the English word servant which had both meanings. It was a combined meaning in English at that time. So that for English readers, we've had some confusion ever since then, because in modern English, a servant is not a slave. Those two words have different meanings today, as did the two words in Greek. Even in modern Greek, the modern Greek translation keeps those words separate. As I've said in other languages, like I know the Russian, there's no problem. Whenever the word slave occurs, it's translated as slave in Russian. It's actually the word R-A-B, which is actually related to our English word robot, R-O-B-R-A-B. I just wanted to make that clear that some of the problems we have in English are due to translations and how meanings have have changed over the centuries in that we have a different understanding of these words than when they were translated back in, say, the King James time, where it was much clearer what a lord was and what a servant or a slave was. So we have that kind of problem today in English translations. And also because of that, more modern translations in other languages that more recently have translated the New Testament into their own languages, often rely on these modern English translations, which are misleading. Just pointing this out because this is actually a real problem in modern times because we don't have the sense of what these words really meant in the original Greek or Hebrew. We have a kind of general confusion with them since the words have changed those meanings, the original meanings, and we've lost what the original sense was. And I'm sure this will come up again and again. Let's start reading the next section here, starting with verse 22 in chapter 14. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. 
he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is basically the institution of the Lord's Supper. If you go to other versions of it in the other Gospels and in Paul's account of it in Corinthians, actually we should go there in Corinthians. In a second, I'm just forgetting. I think it's chapter 11, verses 23 and following. I'd like to just read that. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's an important phrase there that friends have pointed out, until he comes. The understanding here is that this is a kind of memorial service that was to be done by Christians, this meal, this type of Passover meal. It was as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Robert Barclay and others emphasize that until he comes. And of course, the second coming, as friends have understood it, is that second coming of the Spirit of Christ, that living Spirit of Christ within us, when we have that full realization, Him, in us. At that point, of course, there's no further need for a remembrance. It's the difference between having a person in front of you, maybe perhaps thinking about him or seeing a photograph of him. So that the ceremony, actually Robert Barclay said he had no difficulty with having this kind of remembrance meal. But what had happened in centuries of Christianity was that two things got confused. That you had this meal of remembrance and then eating the bread and drinking the wine in terms of how it's expressed here by Jesus. And on the other hand, needing to feed on that bread that comes down from heaven word of God that comes down from heaven, that spiritual bread that um, proceeds from the mouth of God, that is the important feeding. That is the important meal. It is Christ, as it says in verse 320 of Revelation, he's knocking at the door, and perhaps we should go there. Okay, chapter 3, verse 20. Listen, I am standing at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So what we're talking about here is a spiritual partaking of the body and blood of Christ, that living Spirit. And the goal, of course, is union with Christ, be to have him in us and we in him, and he in the Father. A lot of modern-day Christians think the coming of Jesus will be a literal coming in the flesh again. This is a great source of difference between our understanding and their understanding of, of the second coming. That's precisely right. The vast majority of Christians see it as a physical kind of coming. I think I may have mentioned at the yearly meeting in the morning sharings, there was an early friend by the name of William Bailey said that he had heard of a second coming of Christ, but never a third coming. 
And even in the history of Quakerism, there began to become a more physical kind of understanding of this coming of Christ physically. But what we're talking about originally in early Christianity and in those faithful followers, it is a spiritual coming of the living spirit of Christ, the eternal spirit. And the fact that we absolutely have to feed the words of God, those spiritual words that come to us, that sustain us spiritually day after day. Another problem for these Christians that look for an outward second coming is, it also says that in the Bible, in the New Testament, that there are some living who will not die before it happens. And the question is, well, Jesus is wrong if it's a literal outward coming. Yes, that's in chapter 9, verse 1 of Mark. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. You find a similar verse also in Matthew and in Luke, slight variation in language, but the same kind of understanding, that they did achieve that glorious union even before death, that state of that kingdom of God, that state of heaven, that eternal life. It's an important point. Go ahead, Nancy. I believe those things. Maybe we talked about it before, and I just don't remember the point that we're made. talks about him coming in the clouds as, again, had it in my I think I may have talked about that symbolism at some point. Clouds symbolize an epiphany, thunder, lightning. These words that are Jewish theological terms, they're all physical language because we need to talk using physical language to express these spiritual realities. But if we take them literally, we lose them. As it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, literalness kills, but the Spirit gives life. Letter, grama, gia, I'll just write that word down. That's the Greek word that means a letter of the alphabet. And in a broader sense, it means anything that is written down, anything printed, written down. So the letter killeth, anything that is literal. And even the Latin word litera, or one L, one T, I mean, means letter, and that gives us literal. What is literal kills, but the Spirit, on the other hand, gives life, renders life. It's the Spirit behind the letters, behind the what is written, that really matters. And friends have always made this distinction between inward and outward. Here you have the outward physical letters, what's printed, and the inward spirit, the inward concepts, the, the religious, theological, spiritual understandings and thoughts behind those words, that is what really matters. Henry, would you give us the reference of where that was? Was it First Corinthians? I think it's Second Corinthians okay. 3, 6. Let me just make sure. Yeah, it's uh, 3, 6. Uh, from 4 to 6 here. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. He's making a distinction between outward and inward, and uh, that's critical. So this letter means anything written, anything printed. Of course, that's the first thing you see, and that's the first thing you think about when you read something. But you have to get past that, because that's what a child does. He takes everything literally until he gets older and understands things not so literally. You know, we have all these proverbs. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. A stitch in time saves nine. We don't take those literally, but we understand what they mean. And something similar here is what Paul is saying, but regarding spiritual realities. 
This is an important point. I don't want to go past it if it's not clear to people what I'm trying to say here. It did seem that Christ came back literally when he was resurrected and physically. So that wasn't, was that, I mean, God, Christ first appeared in everyone before time when he was put in everyone, including everyone. And then he well, appeared. As a seed, as a seed, the spirit of Christ is in us. The kingdom of God is in us as a seed. It can stay that way forever if we don't attend well, to it. He did show him. He showed himself to his disciples to show that he had been brought back to life. Right. To many people. I mean, 5,000 at one time. And then especially if you remember in the gospel according to John, where he appeared to the 11 apostles who were in a room, a locked room, because they were afraid of the authorities. And he had something to eat to show them that he wasn't just some ghost. But as it says in the last verses of Matthew, all power has been given to me, Jesus says. So that the appearance we have there, the objective appearance, was not something of flimsy ghost, but that he appeared to them as a human being, a real human being. But obviously, getting into a locked room, we're not talking about the same kind of body, physical body, obviously. But that there was something actually real there. Some people may say, too, that because of the docetists, John was especially concerned about making it very clear in his writings, in the gospel, as well as in the letters, that Jesus was a true human being, born, raised, died, but then was resurrected by God the Father, so that he actually ate food there with them in that locked room. And you have to remember that the disciples all ran after Jesus was arrested by the temple police the Romans in the Garden of Gethsemane, they were going to be arrested too, and they all scattered. So they were still very afraid, but obviously they were more seriously interested in Jesus than the followers. Anything else there, David? Was that the verse that he uh, wanted? That's fine. Thank you very much. Okay. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. One thing about this cock crow, I understand that it was against the law to have roosters within the city limits of Jerusalem at this time. And the cock crow also referred to these night watches they had, the military had every three hours, and that this is perhaps what is being referred to here as to these different cock crows. It may be those like ringing of bells or something, if we had something more modern that they had at that time. But it's not that clear, but that's what I've read. Later on, when we get to it at the end, we want to refer back to this phrase, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee after his resurrection. Verse 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated and said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. 
Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want to note that I had been looking at some commentaries, one of which is called The Interpreter's One-Volume Commentary on the Bible and has things to say on each verse. But in the overview of the book of Mark, the particular commentator says that there's a strong condemnation of the original 12 and the Jewish tradition by Mark, who's representing a Gentile point of view, if not prejudice. So Mark is really rubbing it in that these guys were unreliable and that they were going to melt away. It's very unsympathetic to the original Jewish followers. I would disagree with that commentary. The Gospel according to Mark, and we assume Mark was John Mark, and actually I'll have something to say about him in a few minutes here too when we read further. Basically, this was considered to be the gospel whose source was Peter himself, Simon Peter. And my understanding, I think it's from Acts, is that at some point it says that Paul was to go to the Gentiles, whereas Peter went to the Jews. Paul went to actually both, but he went outside of Palestine. And so I can't understand that kind of characterization in that commentary. Although I have to say, I have a lot of commentaries, and boy, they are all over the place. Sometimes they agree, sometimes they're off in their own directions, and you just have to be aware of that. You can learn some good things from some commentaries, but just pray that the Lord helps in discerning the truth behind the words in in Scripture. That does help me, and I was not so much placing stock in that commentary as wanting to know what perspective you would have on that particular question of whether there's an anti-Jewish bias in Mark. Yeah, I don't think so, no. Actually, I have the whole 12-volume interpreter's Bible there, too, as along with that single volume, but I very rarely look at it these days. There's nothing like that in early Quaker writings, but so often they are interpreting biblical verses and so many writings that you get a general sense of how they understand scripture. And that kind of understanding, that frame of mind is something I try to pursue in myself, hopefully with the Lord's help, how to read scripture. I was going to say the word Abba is an Aramaic word. It's the word for father or dad, daddy. And here we have the actual word Abba, father, translated into Greek right afterwards, uh, pater is the Greek word for father, very similar to Latin pater. The word hour in Greek can mean literally an hour, like one hour. It also can just mean a given time, a certain period of time. It does not necessarily mean one hour. My hour has not come. My time has not yet come. Again, not taking that word literally as just an hour as you would in English. So often elsewhere, Jesus goes off to pray silently, silently waiting upon God the Father. Here we have someone assumedly has recorded what Jesus said here. 
And I want to make a point when we read the next section here, and might refer to that, beginning with verse 43 through 52. Just add one thing, that this passage here where the disciples really aren't towing the line, I guess, is one way of saying it, is a way of contrasting the natural way of being with Christ. Um, Christ is expressing his difficulty with what's expected of him when he says, what verse was it, that God can do all things and... Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. So he is showing the difficulty that he's undergoing, but he is moving past it. Whereas the disciples are completely overcome with their natural inclinations to fall asleep. So I think it's making a contrast between how Jesus is handling a difficult situation and how the disciples are. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then it goes on to say the spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. So I think that that line is underscored in the passage. Mm -hmm. I have sure a question I, about that verse. You know, that they really would stay awake, but the flesh is weak. Go ahead. David. Well, I'm looking at a interlinear Greek, and when it says flesh, it's a translation of sarx, S-A-R-X. And I just wonder if there's any further insight we should get about that. Does it simply mean our human inclinations? Is sarx a... Uh, it does mean our physical flesh, our muscles, tendons, all that. But it also means that animal nature we have that nature that is not a spiritual nature, but it just comes with having a physical body like other animals have a physical body and want to eat and drink, etc., etc. That's an important meaning of that word sarks. Sometimes it's an outward physical thing, and other times it's this human nature, this more physical animal nature, which oftentimes in the New Testament is looked at negatively. It distracts us from our goal of becoming more spiritual creatures closer to God. I raise the question because there's this kind of counterpoint to the early heresy of Gnosticism, in which, by definition, the body is to be scorned, to be escaped from, is evil. And I just wonder if there is any implicit prejudice against our physical self, or if that's something that comes in later. If you talk about Gnosticism, I understand there are eight different forms of Gnosticism, very complex. But the whole thing about the body was basically, as they were saying, was kind of being scorned because it didn't matter. And you'd have some Gnostics become very ascetic-like in their ways of life. On the other hand, you get just the opposite kind of Gnostics who were much more free-for-all, libertine, and do anything you want because the flesh doesn't matter. Sort of like ranters. Yes, just like ranters at a later date, but this is what are called the antinomians, too, like, like the ranters. All these physical laws, they don't matter, but they are forgetting what it says in the New Testament. The law of the Spirit should be the real law that matters. You can follow the 613 Jewish laws in the law of Moses, but that may not get you anywhere in terms of getting closer to God but it is following the law of the Spirit, which was something understood in early Christianity and referred to at times. That law of the Holy Spirit, following that law is what is the law to follow. 
that goes beyond the legalism. Getting back to matter as being evil, I just want to remind you, David, that in Genesis, it says God made everything over seven days, and he thought it was pretty good what he did. Matter was something, I mean, just go look at the world. It's beautiful at times. Looking outside my patio door right now at the smoke in the skies here, this too will pass. I wanted to mention something that occurred to me about what Patricia said. I've always felt in reading this portion of Mark that one of the realities at work is that Jesus faced his crucifixion all alone. It was his thing alone that was happening. And so like with the disciples sleeping and such, they weren't there to help him. He he was on his own. Jack, he's bringing up something important here. This word pistis that we translate as faith or belief, and I've mentioned this many times, Basically, a better translation in most places might be trust or confidence. Jesus' faith as a human being was really being tested here. This was a test of faith that is a kind of model for us, I think, that we're being given here. That his absolute confidence in God the Father is what matters. Even though he realizes what could happen and it would be a horrible kind of death, he is willing to do the will of God. So we have here the ultimate form of faith or belief, or as I said, the basic means of these words. Basically, the word pistis is trust or confidence, putting full trust, full confidence in the will of God, in doing the will of God, in what God is asking him to do. There is another thing that occurs to me when I read that passage also. Satan thought he was in control right then. I know there are times when I've been, well, for instance, in a meeting that was more liberal and I felt tired, like I couldn't keep awake. I feel like it's the spirit of darkness trying to take over. And I think that was probably affecting the disciples as well. The spirit that was in the world thought he had control, but God still had control. But this had to happen for us, I guess the prince of the world, or as the Greek would translate it better, as uh, the ruler of this world, Satan, the devil. You can understand, too, here it is evening and probably getting late, and they've just had this big meal with wine, and it was kind of a struggle to stay awake, maybe, but Jesus wanted them to, and they just were, the flesh is weak, the need for sleep. I think we all understand that. (laughs) Okay, let's read the next section here. Just 43 to 51, and then we'll stop. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come up with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. Judas said that the one he would be kissing would be the one they want, Jesus. And he calls Jesus rabbi. What does rabbi mean? 
teacher. Master. Teacher, yes, master in the British sense of master, a teacher, rabbi, teacher, my teacher. It was normal for a student to kiss their teacher in greeting him. So this was something understood here. And if you recall the word disciple, the Greek word, I've mentioned this over and over again, is mathetes. Student. Which means student or pupil, yes. And we translate it as disciple. The word disciple comes from the Latin word discipulus, which means student or pupil. As I've said before, if I were reading the Russian of this, that's the word they use, uchinik. Still a, a modern Russian word that just means a student, like in high school or grammar school or pupil. That's a disciple. And Jesus, of course, is the rabbi, which is the Hebrew and the Aramaic for teacher. Jesus is the teacher, and the disciples are the students. In one of the other Gospels, does anyone recall who was the person that cut off the ear of the high priests? Peter. It was Peter, right. I mentioned that Peter is probably the source of this Gospel, so his name is not mentioned here. And also one here, cutting off his ear. The word here is, is a, a diminutive form of the word for ear. It might have just been the earlobe. We don't know if it meant the whole ear or just the earlobe. Might have been one of those small knives. I forget what you call them. There's one word I wanted to look up here in verse 48, bandit. This word, stace is the word for bandit or thief, but it also means an insurrectionist, a rebel. And that's important because later on, when you read about the crucifixion of Jesus, it says he was crucified between two of these stace. More likely, they weren't your typical bandit or thief, but rather someone who was opposed to the Roman government and were being executed because of that opposition. It was a political crime. Just like Jesus himself, the charge against him was that he declared himself to be king of the Jews, the charge that was written on the sign above his cross. So all of these people are insurrectionists, insurgents, that sort of thing, opposed to the Roman Empire. Of course, this was a false charge against Jesus, but it's important to see that here in this word. And finally, in verse 51 and 52, a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. Well, this young man may actually be the writer of this gospel, John Mark. Elsewhere in early Christian writings, it's mentioned that he was the translator or the interpreter for Peter, that he obviously spoke both Greek and Aramaic. And he's a certain young man. His mother, Mary, perhaps was where Jesus held the Last Supper in their house. He was wearing a linen cloth. Basically, he probably was following along at a distance and may even be the one who heard these words of Jesus that was being prayed by Jesus. It says here, they caught hold of him. The temple police, the Roman soldiers, caught hold of him. But he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. He was probably wearing what we would call pajamas this time, and he ran off naked. So this might be an autobiographical statement here, just like it doesn't mention Matthew, I mean, Peter's name in the few verses before this. And here it's this young guy who may be the reference that we're seeing here. Henry? Yes. I got knocked off when we were discussing the Last Supper. And I had a question about that. 
I have heard Quaker worship characterized as a communion service, and I wanted your thoughts on that. In 25 words or less? <laughs> uh, I'm being a little facetious here, but I don't know if I, how I can simplify this in just a few sentences. Yes, but it's, I would say it's the setting for communion with God. The worship itself can also be a setting, a venue for the continued transformation, that kind of repentance that we need to make ourselves holier, purer, more what a temple that we are for the Holy Spirit should be so that we can have access into the Holy of Holies within the temple that we are. Uh-huh. Um, I'm just really simplifying things here, I think. Uh, It really is what friends have understood, silent waiting worship, waiting upon the Lord. We need to purify ourselves. That's the first part. We have to make ourselves humble, get rid of our egotistical selves so that we become pure vessels for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, God, to enter into our consciousness in a real profound way to help us change our addiction to a more materialistic, worldly kind of outlook and focus on Christ, who should be everything for us, number one in our lives. I've tried to answer that question, Earl, but... Close enough. I'm just so aware at the moment of all the crazy chit-chatting that goes on in my head at times (laughs) when I'm trying to be more focused and attentive and be still and know that I am God be focused, be empty my head of all this extraneous, distracting kind of stuff. The focus really is on the need for sanctification and justification. That is making myself holy and making myself upright, how God wants me to be upright, righteous in other words. Not self-righteous, but righteous in God's eyes. I think that's how I understand it. It seems to me that Jesus would go off to pray. In a sense, that was like our Quaker meeting is sort of a parallel of that, where Jesus went off to wait on the Lord, on God. We do the same thing. Yes. Anything else? Okay, I think we'll stop the recording. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote from William Penn in our introduction is from his book, No Cross, No Crown, paragraph number 5, chapter 3, page 27, from the 1842 Harvey and Darton version. A link to the Project Gutenberg copy is available in the description of this podcast episode. We welcome feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes please email us at oymconservative at gmail.com.